founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reads with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. talking about today today we are dishing on something i feel like people refer to a lot it's kind Mm -hmm. of a timely topic what professional skill was not covered in school that you wish had been now we had a lot of responses to this oh yes people got that 2020 vision and they (laughs) know what they wish they had had that 2021 vision 2021 vision yes what skills do you wish that you hadn't had to learn at the school of hard knocks Mm, okay so this is not the fault of my institutions but purely my own fault oboe adjustments noel also wrote in oboe adjusting and i was offered the opportunity to learn how to adjust my oboe but i didn't take it because i was too scared (laughs) Um, it is scary. As someone who taught double reads for a few years, bassoonist, you don't get it. Like you don't get, you look at an oboe and it goes out of adjustment. That is 100% true. You sneeze on an oboe and it goes out of adjustment. And my students yeah. would come to me like, my oboe's out of adjustment. I'd be like, there's no way. There's no <laughs> way it can be out of adjustment again. And I was like getting on Google, like, okay, how do I do this? What's this like thing? And no, you should not like Google how to adjust an oboe. That's like not a thing. No. And so I'd just be like, I don't know. I just remember being like, I'm set up to fail. And just like sitting in the corner, hugging myself, my (laughs) my chest, rocking back and forth. Like I didn't learn how to do it by myself until I got to UW Platteville with you. And I had to, I was by myself. I was, I was by myself and I had to just figure it out. (laughs) I had three different oboe adjusting manuals. And so like it in my little office in Platteville, I would sit there cross-referencing three manuals for every micro turn of the screw. I'm very you, comfortable with it now, but 
let me tell you, it was a hard one. It's actually not that bad once you get the hang of it, but it, but for some reason I was always really scared. So I wouldn't learn how to do it. So you know that I started on the oboe, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Before I switched to bassoon and I had no lessons. I had no idea what I was doing. It was just playing for fun in band. And I had a little like screwdriver, like you use for the glasses. My band director was working with the trumpets or someone else, I forget. And I went, some of these screws are loose. No. I'm going to tighten every no. screw on my oboe to the tightest it will go. <laughs> and then it was time to play and none of my keys would push. They were just like standing there like soldiers. And you I was were like- just killing time, tightening every screw. <laughs> none of my keys would even move. And my band director just looked at it like, what is happening? <laughs> Poor guy. Don't tighten the screws on your oboe for fun. Get like an actual adjustment guide. How about you? What what was your skill that you wish you had gotten? Well, oboe adjustment? I was just going to say, I was <laughs> not talking about something else, but really there was a period of my life where in order to pay the bills, the double read job was what I needed to find myself doing. No shame in that, by the way. No shame at all. Though people did try to shame me and Love to my double read teachers. People will say rude things sometimes. You are not less than, you are awesome. No, you're awesome. Uh, I didn't thrive in that position, but in large part because I did not hold myself accountable, nor was I exposed to any oboe stuff really beyond repertoire. But if I had it to do over again, I probably would have taken in my doctorate two semesters of private oboe lessons and said to the oboe prof, what does a professional bassoonist potentially need to know mm-hmm. in terms of double read pedagogy mm-hmm. and have learned some of those things. If I can't make reads, the general principles that I would need to know to guide or the resources and how to interpret the resources. I shouldn't have had to figure out on the job that an oboe goes out of adjustment so easily. If I, <laughs> you know, if I had it to do over again, maybe someone is a classical saxophonist, but you take a couple semesters of jazz lessons, you know, mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. I, if I had it to do over again, I would have covered a little more double read base mm-hmm. uh, because it is a, a cruddy feeling to feel like you're not doing right by your students on the job. And it already feels like super high pressure. Yep. But our listeners had a lot of. Oh, they had so much. Oh, by the way, I would also add like being able to feel more comfortable, like teaching music appreciation or teaching fundamentals of music theory, like that kind of thing would have saved me a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good point because there are classes. Yes. Like fundamentals, like a prish where it's just assumed if you have a graduate degree in music, you can handle this course and it will likely end up on your load at some point in time. Yeah. So yeah, you just say, yes, thank you. Can I please have some more? Yes. (laughs) Same with the double read job. If I wanted to, you know, be a professional and still have the bassoon be how I pay my bills, I had to add this other thing to my load and it's what Mm -hmm. life called for at the time. And so you Mm -hmm. say yes, and you keep working toward the next goal. So bits of bassoon, Marta said (laughs) recording and editing. I love that handle. That's so cute. Um, Recording and editing. That's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. especially with the technology that we have now where it's so accessible and so easy. Like yeah. it would be great to be able to do that faster and easier, you know, to just be able to throw a video together. Yeah. And especially a lot of opportunities call for, you know, submit this tape, 
do this thing, summer festivals, mm -hmm. um, tape rounds for audition, higher ed jobs, a lot of things, even just marketing yourself online. You know, if you can do that in-house as opposed to have to pay someone for it, that is a really, really important thing. <laughs> um, Philip Hill said financial literacy. Cue Kermit drinking the tea, the meme <laughs> reference. Well, yes, and I like the um, hint of sarcasm here because, you know, not to get too meta, but part of why they don't want us to learn financial literacy is we might make different choices educationally <laughs> if we were completely informed financially. <laughs> oh my God, it's so true and it hurts. It does. Oh, I mean, again, you get those hindsight goggles and you go oh maybe that's not sustainable <laughs> that's not sustainable exactly and that's where you know if you can talk to people who've been there done that even besides um like if you're applying for say graduate school or or looking at your next step look look to the advice of some people who maybe aren't directly involved or don't benefit from that particular decision. Like don't only talk to people whose studios you're applying for, talk to people who, like we say in the interviews, whose career would you like to emulate or can you see yourself doing? And talk to them about even the financial decisions that they made and is the path we feel we have to take always necessary. So both Eric and Christy said basically business and marketing slash self-marketing. That's a hugely important one. And it's so broad. So Eric says being a full-time musician requires so much more than playing well, being able to market yourself is so important. And then Christy said, I've learned on the fly, but realistically, realistically, we all need them in order to build a career in this environment. And I co-sign that hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, the listeners of this podcast hear it happening in real time. You oh. and I get an idea, and then we go to Google University and figure out how to make it happen. And it's cool because we've added to our skill set, but it has taken lots of time. Yes, that would have been lovely if I had been taught the finances of commissioning a work and, and yeah. doing a consortium. Completely relevant to my education, mm -hmm. um, but something that we had to pay money yeah, yeah. to figure out and feel financially secure mm -hmm. in pursuing. And it could, it could take years before you get a job that can sustain you in this field. So you have to figure out what to do in the in-between time. Yeah. And how to make opportunities. Um, like a read making business or a private teaching business or something like that. For some of these other skills we've talked about, Justin talked about uh, resume writing. So we've had mm -hmm. recording, resume writing, financial tutoring. By the way, these are all skills that you could combine with your bassoon or oboe to create opportunities and provide services and Absolutely. whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it just, it really is a testament to how creative people oh, in yeah. this field are that we look around and go, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I wish I was doing that. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. 
processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Kane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane, here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. We are beyond excited to welcome Dr. Shannon Lau, Assistant Professor of Bassoon and Oral Skills at the University of Florida. Hi, Shannon. Hi, ladies. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy and thrilled to be here. I would love to start by asking you how you got started playing the bassoon. Well, uh, the funny thing is I had no idea what a bassoon was uh, when I picked the instrument. Uh, Believe it or not, I wanted to play the English horn. And uh, I don't know how I put an English horn. Oh, oh, yes, yes. I I have an English uh, horn side of my heart. And uh, I had... um, I had asked my band director on instrument tryout night. I said, hey, uh, I don't want to play what everybody else plays, like blues, saxophone, clarinet, although although I appreciate these instruments so much, even more now. but can I play the English horn? And he said, no, uh, we don't have an English horn because it was a small program. Uh, but he said, if you want something along those lines, you could play oboe or bassoon. And so I thought to myself, bassoon, what is that? That sounds pretty nifty. And well, I'll play the bassoon. And so he gave me this beat up old wooden case. I think it was a Bundy bassoon, believe it or not. Like, oh, it was a ratty bassoon and a ratty big wooden case and falling apart and a book and said, I have no idea how to teach this. You are on your own. And uh, so I bring the bassoon home with a book to my parents and my dad sits down with me and he said, Shannon, what <laughs> have you done? And I said, well, it, it seems like a cool instrument. And he helps me put it together. And uh, I um, read, look over the book and start learning it myself. And I uh, had a, a little bit of a background or I had a background in music from piano lessons so I could read bass club. That was helpful. <laughs> And uh, fortunately, uh, in the spring of that year of starting the bassoon, that was my sixth grade year, uh, a teacher moved to my town and I had guidance from very early on uh, in starting the bassoon. So yeah, I had no idea what a bassoon was, wanted to play English horn, and uh, now I'm a doctor of bassoon. How's that for coming full circle? It's pretty crazy. (laughs) Well, I wanna hear more about that. So when did you kind of think like, hey, the bassoon something I might want to do professionally. And talk to us about embarking on a path as like a serious bassoonist. Um, well, uh, it was in high school where I really started to get super involved with bassoon uh, because it was not only playing in band, uh, but an opportunity arose where my bassoon teacher at the time, they needed to have a second bassoonist or utility bassoonist come in and play with the local regional orchestra, you know, for pop concerts, stuff like that. Nothing like too serious, although that did advance as I got to my senior year, I played um, on a masterwork um, uh, concert series. Uh, But I got involved with playing with the regional orchestra here and there, uh, sitting next to my bassoon teacher, which was a great training. And I really loved the orchestral setting. It was just 
just um, so exciting and very stimulating compared to band. And at least in my band program, um, you know, a lot of times it was small band program. I was playing tuba and euphonium parts, and those are great parts, but I wanted more stimulation. I wanted more solos, and uh, that wasn't happening so much in band. So orchestra, I'm playing in that um, was a really great experience. And then I also ended up playing with a group of um, retired musicians from the Northeast. Uh, so they were all formerly professional musicians, except one was uh, a flute player who was an MIT grad that just was a highly trained and skilled flutist on the side of his amazing engineering um, abilities. But they were in their mid to late 60s. I think one was in their 70s. And uh, they needed a bassoon player for their group because my teacher couldn't didn't have enough time because she was raising her family. So she said, oh, Shannon could play with you guys. And this was maybe, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of high school. I started having basically monthly rehearsals with these retired musicians. We would, and they had a whole packet of copied um, quintets, women quintets. And so I would just have to come in there and just read down quintets with them. And they would all have all these amazing stories. And I just loved it so much. I'm like, oh, well, bassoon, this is, this is turning out to be quite stimulating and exciting. Although I was also interested in meteorology because uh, during my high school years, Twister came out. <laughs> oh my god and being a floridian i love i know this is not probably good to say that you love it but i really loved hurricanes i was excited about hurricanes and uh and tracking them like public well, anything that gets you out of school right oh oh yeah yeah i was a real big weather nerd and um also i thought about uh, being a veterinarian like my dad because i grew up um, going into work with him and um, assisting him sometimes, uh, you know, cutting stitches and stuff like that uh, for, you know, minor little sewing ups of uh, animals and uh, helping him take care of animals. And we had um, anim a lot of animals growing up. So I was really into taking care of animals. So I thought, you know, uh, being a veterinarian could be an option. Uh, but really, uh, music was the dominant force in my life in high school. I was so involved in band, everything in music. I even did choir. Um, I took piano lessons still. Uh, I was just heavily involved in music. And um, it was really towards my senior year and with one of my, uh, my second of two bassoon teachers in my uh, uh, high school years, she really pushed me and said, you should consider going on in music studies. So then I considered instead of just doing state schools, um, I also auditioned at a couple of conservatories as well uh, for collegiate studies thinking, well, maybe I could just do bassoon all the time. Um, but uh, finally what ended up happening as I get to that decision-making moment, I was still on the fence because I, I was like, well, veterinary medicine could be great. And um, there's a program at the University of Florida where you could be a double major. So I could do music and get all my prerequisites to be a veterinarian. And I could always have music in my life. Uh, so I started off a path in college by going to the University of Florida thinking, 
I'm more going to be a veterinarian with music on the side, but still pursue music as a double major so I could have that uh, balancing with all the science. It's great to have that artistic side being developed, um, that nurturing side, um, discipline, you know, music brings in so much discipline, all of these attributes that help for veterinary school. Uh, but <laughs> I, uh, my first semester in college, I had to take Gen Chem 1. <laughs> and uh, the weed out class, as they call it. And uh, you guys, I was, I thought of myself as a smart cookie back in the day in high school. I mean, I was a valedictorian, straight A student, miss, you know, sit in the front seat of class and, and uh, you know, maybe an overachiever sometimes. Uh, but I was finding myself that first semester of college just immersing myself in music. Like any anytime they needed a bassoonist, said sign me up, I will play. I started offering lessons to uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers and uh, teaching them and practicing my bassoon more than studying for chemistry. And it gets towards the end of uh, the semester, my first semester with chemistry. And I go in for help and the TA was, I think he's just said, it's too late for you. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. And, and, it, and it didn't help that the TA was, he was kind of good looking too. And I had a crush on him. I know this is just so silly to say this, but he would show me something like a formula and I would just be gazing. I'm like, oh, wow, he's, he's a really nice looking gentleman and really smart at <laughs> chemistry. And, and then he would ask me to do it. And then I just didn't absorb anything. And I'm embarrassed to admit that. But um, uh, anyway, I got a D plus in chemistry, my first D plus ever. And I, it was a, a wake up call for me uh, where I looked inward and said, do I really want to go down this path? What am I doing more of? What am I invest investing my time in? And it was music. And uh, then I decided to switch um, with encouragement from my parents um, and as well as my bassoon teacher saying that I could do this and, and not to be afraid, uh, take the plunge. I switched to being a music education major. And uh, from there, uh, the rest is history. I just kept going down the path, uh, really getting into the nitty gritty of bassoon and loving every moment of it. Well, you know, a D plus is just a really ambitious D. Oh, I love that way of framing it, Delete. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> it is an ambitious D. Yeah. Oh, but that was, oh boy, did that take me down a peg or two? But it was also a great lesson to know that um, you you survive these things. Like that, yeah. that was kind of a fail. That's a failing point for a straight A student. I was like, oh, it's feeling at figuring out balance and and life goes on. You know, you're not defined by that uh, over. You know, that D plus. You're not defined <laughs> by that. I know. Yeah, it, it all ends up being good information that leads you where you need to go. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it does. And it led yeah. me down the right path. I've never regretted that decision of switching out of that. And, and still, I love animals. I love animals and um, have animals in my life. And uh, I, I uh, teach a lot of uh, students who are doing like pre-vet or pre-med uh, programs at the University of Florida. So um, I understand with their academic classes, like the, the load that comes down on them. And, uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, things turned out really, really uh, well. Tell us more about that path. How did you um, land on, you know, pursuing collegiate teaching? 
Uh, well, I, I, with collegiate teaching, um, it was more of that I just enjoyed the collegiate atmosphere. I didn't want to leave school. I wanted to be in school <laughs> all the time. Uh, I always was teaching from a very young age, even um, even in middle school, because I had uh, I had piano lessons from the age of five and really had strong music fundamentals. And so I was always helping out my friends and band with rhythms, coaching sectionals. I was drum major, so I would get up, get up in front of the group. And sometimes my band director would have to go do something and he would say, Shannon, rehearse the group. So I would jump up there and uh, help them uh, prepare music. And then I taught a lot of private lessons as an undergraduate and, and then as a graduate student, I really loved being able to help uh, young musicians get better at the bassoon. And it was very exciting. And uh, to think about a career doing something like that and being in a collegiate setting where you are instructing and having that uh, engaging and supportive atmosphere of continuous learning, because learning doesn't stop once you graduate with your degrees. I mean, I'm still learning so much now. Um, but it was really all of these teaching experiences just felt so natural. And, and I, by the time I got into more advanced schooling and uh, got into doctoral school, I was ever more assured that this is what I need to do. I want to be teaching at a collegiate, uh, collegiate level. So can you walk us through then um, your experience pursuing graduate study and how you got to where you are today? Um, so graduate studies, uh, basically midway through my undergraduate career, uh, they hired a new bassoon professor and uh, at the University of Florida, and I thrived so much underneath his tutelage. I didn't feel like two years was enough with him and my undergraduate, so I decided to stick around for another couple years for my graduate study with him. And then um, what ended up happening is it came time to think about doctoral school because um, that to me was the next step in the process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was motivated and really uh, wanting to continue on that path to become a doctor of bassoon. And uh, basically uh, a wonderful opportunity opened up um, with Frank Morelli at SUNY Stony Brook. And uh, I was accepted into his studio uh, to start um, doctoral studies with him. And uh, that was a an incredible growing experience. And to give you some background, when I was at UFF, I was a top bassoon player, you know, the, the, the big fish uh, in a little pond, mm -hmm. which came with the benefit of, I had many amazing uh, experiences and ensembles where I got to play a lot of lead roles, like be in the hot seat and become comfortable with it. And um, you know, I played Shasti Nine, I think, as a junior. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I had it was incredible what I was able to experience and and do it in a setting that was um, you know low risk. Like you could you could fail, but then succeed. And um, so I was the big fish in a little pond. And I get to SUNY Stony Brook, and there are almost a dozen amazing graduate students um, that are are incredible at their instrument in bassoon. And it opened my eyes to think, mm -hmm. wow, um, I am now the 
little fish in the big pond. And it was a much needed wake up call for me. Uh, and it inspired me to practice more, to raise my standards and aspire to be like my bassoon graduate colleagues. It was such a, um, a needed experience for me coming from a program without a with a studio like that and um you know i will admit that there were a lot of tears shed for me in the practice room through the doctoral process it it was looking inward at my deficiencies and knowing that i shouldn't be held back by them but i can look to them face them and i can do this i can't do it, but it takes it takes grit and it takes work and and putting in the time and and, uh, um, and of course, Frank Morelli was an incredible guide through this, uh, but that was a, a, a growing up experience for me later, a little bit later on in the game, um, I would say, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. So that's how it uh, all ended up for me in, in doctoral, um, you know, in doctoral school. Uh, that kind of experience, I think, has molded me, um, especially more than any of my other experiences. It sounds humbling. Oh, it indeed was. It, it indeed was. In our studio classes, I I will admit, I, I'm going to say this is probably going to be very embarrassing to admit, but I could not double tongue very well at all in doctoral school. I mean, I had a fast-ish uh, single tongue, um, and double tonguing was always a a limiting uh, thing for me in, in graduate school. And, and as I get into doctoral study, I'm hearing uh, people play Marriage of Figaro, ha Marriage of Figaro, um, you know, um, Hoffner, Beethoven four in studio classes, just zinging it away, like no problem. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to be able to do this. And, and, and I can do this if I put in the work. And it was uh, good for me to hear that, but yeah. It was very humbling and, and much needed. So um, needed to get that into my diet. <laughs> needed some humble pie. How did you, so was your path from graduating from your doctorate and then you went to Valdosta State and then you went to University of Florida. How, how was that kind of a straightforward um, trajectory? <laughs> Or was that a little bit more of a winding path for you? Um, I will say this. For me, it was a straight path. It was a straight shot from mm -hmm. undergraduate all the way to my first job. And mm -hmm. I am incredibly fortunate to have this straight of a path because I know so many people, uh, my husband included, dear friends, colleagues, where their path was filled with detours mm -hmm. and uh, stops along the way at a maybe a not so great place where you are you aren't going anywhere. And for me, I was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time with the right skill set and determination to put myself in a position to be. Um, an ideal candidate for a job uh, that would open up, I would say, at a at a university such as Valdosta State, my first job. And also there's some networking and luck that comes into play. So I want to acknowledge everybody that's listening, you know, I was lucky and but again, what a company that was having all of these attribute, attributes on my side um, that helped when the opportunity arose and um, not everybody's path is going to be the same. And 
try not to compare yourself uh, to other people's paths. And and with my husband, he didn't get his first job until 35. And I was in my, my late 20s, fresh out of, not even fresh out of doctoral school, just finishing things up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we were on Long, Long Island, as they yeah. say it there. <laughs> I had to learn how to pronounce so many things in Long Island. Um, <laughs> there's a town, on a side note, there's a town called um, Ronkonkoma. And I thought it was Ronkonkoma. I pronounced it that way. And I was in my German class, no, no less, with like 18-year-olds learning German and, and being like in my mid-20s, trying struggling to learn another foreign language for requirements. And I said, I need to go to the Ronkonkoma station. And they mean, hon, you mean Ronkonkoma? You know, I said it that way. And, but anyway, Long Island, getting back to that, we were both, uh, as, as I was going through doctoral school, uh, my husband was there with me on Long Island, and uh, we were uh, both working at Barnes & Noble. So I was a barista in the cafe part-time, and he was a music manager. Uh, back when they had, you could buy CDs. and I and, remember and, very clearly, yes. He had a reputation for being like the person to come to on Long Island for the classical music selection. Like people would drive out to, um, what was it? Lake Grove. That was a Lake Grove, Smith Haven Mall uh, <laughs> to look at his amazing collection of classical CDs that he had ordered uh, for the department. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so uh, with doctoral school, I just had a few things to uh, finish up in my uh, third, end of my third year. And um, we couldn't afford to live on Long Island any longer. It was so expensive. And, you know, the salaries that we made at Barnes & Noble, I mean, it was a great company to work for, very flexible in their hours, especially as me working as a barista, uh, but it was just not feasible. So we got transferred down to Palm Beach Gardens because I have family in Florida. And I thought, okay, we both can work at this Barnes & Noble. Um, I'll work in the cafe. He'll be a, a music manager in Palm Beach Gardens. And and uh, we'll just, I'll fly back up to finish things in um, in um, Long Island at SUNY Stony Brook. Last couple of things I had to check off to get my doctorate. And uh, if something works out teaching wise or playing wise, uh, we'll take that as it comes. So we transferred, but on the way down on I-95, uh, we had my our, our old Toyota Corolla packed down with everything we owned. I don't think we went over 55 the entire <laughs> way because people were probably angrily gesticulating at us because we were going so slow on I-95. But um, we got a call uh, from a friend that worked at Valdosta saying a temporary bassoon line, uh, a bassoon and music theory uh, line was going to open up. So just one year. And he said, I think you guys need to swing over and go to Valdosta, meet some people and see if they're accepting applications, put a name to the face. And so this is all about having a network connection. You know, that was luck. Someone was there that knew about it. This was in summer. So you're driving down. uh, This was probably late May. And we took a detour in South Carolina and uh, drove through the bowels of Georgia, like back roads to get to Valdosta. That was a whole journey. Uh, I didn't even know some of these places existed. And uh, we get to Valdosta. I meet 
a couple of people in the music department introduced myself and they said, well, we'll be accepting applications, uh, submit your application, your portfolio, uh, some recordings, and we'll get back to you uh, if we feel we want to invite you for the position. Um, so we move and get settled into Palm Beach Gardens. Fortunately, I was starting two weeks later than my husband. So I had those two weeks to uh, get my portfolio together, write that dreaded cover letter. Oh, guys, just always have a cover letter ready to go. Mm -hmm. um, and this is this was uh, just a frantic thing because cover letters are so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was able to practice for a couple of weeks without having to worry about working full time uh, to work on excerpts because that was part of the audition as well as a 30 minute recital. Mm -hmm. um, they do. I sim submit my packet. They invite me up um, and uh, I go through the whole process. And I I thought, hey, I think I did OK for that job. But I didn't go in expecting to win anything, to be completely honest. I thought, well, I don't meet all of the qualifications for the job. I didn't have my doctorate as of yet, but I just threw my hat into the ring. I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? They say no, they don't invite me. So I go through the process. It, it just, everything jives playing wise and interviewing wise. And I get the call um, several days later. Hey, would you like to come work with us at Valdosta State University. Uh, you'll be teaching bassoon and um, music theory one and oral skills. And I said, yes, and yes, I'm so excited. Uh, and then they said, can you also teach music and film? And this was, mind you, a few weeks before the semester was about to start, and I had no training in music and film. This is not my background, but mm -hmm. for these regional colleges, as you both know, if you're going to be a teacher of double reads, you are going to wear many hats. Yeah. And, you just say uh, yes. You're like, yeah, I can do that. Say yes to the dress. You just say yeah. yes. You say yes. And I said, I can do that. Yes, no problem. And with the skills that you acquire in graduate school, all those papers you had to write, all that research and reading that you had to do, that prepares you for these opportunities. So mm -hmm. I just boned up. I, I uh, looked at articles. I got the textbook. And I fortunately had... Um, some help from a colleague who had taught the class, um, a friend that sent me some materials, and I was on my way. And with with that, uh, we both moved. We quit our jobs. I only worked for two weeks at the Barnes and Noble, and my husband worked at <laughs> uh, worked there a month. We, were, we said goodbye and uh, moved to Valdosta, and uh, that that was a crazy experience and but that's so unusual uh, mm -hmm. and my husband was with me and he's a professional musician and um an academic uh but the but he didn't have an, an opportunity like that in the beginning of his career like i did so uh, that was my getting into my first job yeah it's important it's important to keep that perspective and if you are getting those opportunities that is awesome and go for it and don't feel bad just take it, just take it. But if you're not getting those opportunities yet, it's, it's not, you know, it's not the death knell of your career. Yeah, yeah. It's not a reflection of your qualifications. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly. There's so many factors at play. And I do feel that, you know, I'm a person that didn't like think about having a certain life plan. Like I have to do this by a certain age, or if I don't have a house or uh, a certain certain way of living i just went in with into music thinking 
it'll work out somehow. That was sort of my mentality with it. And, and I tried really hard not to compare myself to other people's successes because even in doctoral school, I applied for jobs and I got rejected all the time. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, and same thing with auditions. I, I considered going, um, down the playing route too. And I, I went in auditions. I didn't progress past the first round. And, and sometimes I did. And, and I, I was just like, that's the way it is. And, and something, just having the hope, having hope that something will play out and perseverance and patience. Uh, but again, my, my path was indeed so straight and narrow. And that is not, I don't think the norm for so right. many of us, but I mm -hmm. do strongly believe that you do end up where you belong at some point and it's just having faith in that and trusting in the process and your training and the job that you may get in the future may not be what you think it is too like mm -hmm. success um can be something completely different than you imagined it and it's and it's acknowledging that yeah for sure and that's really awesome psychological and emotional advice, which is an important part of it. Um, but as we're having this discussion, I wonder if we could pair that with some like tangible advice. So in terms of you being an applicant and even now I'm sure having served on search committees for yourself, if there are students or current colleagues who are on the academic job market, what advice do you have for the application process? What, what would you tell those people? This is good to talk about. Um, well, women apply for that job. Yes. Submit that application because there's a study out, I can't remember which study this is, that if women do not feel they meet 100% of the qualifications, they won't apply. And for some women and men, if they, and I love men, I, this is nothing against the, the guys, but um, if they meet 60% of the qualifications, they'll apply for it. Mm -hmm. So the first step is putting your application in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's incredibly important is your reputation in our world. The music world is a small world. And I know that's an overused phrase, uh, but we are all interconnected in some way, even outside of the music world, because you don't know, say, a class that you took with a chemistry professor might be a good friend of one of the music um, music faculty at a college that you're applying for. And if they had a bad experience with you, you know, people remember either the really, really great stuff or outstanding stuff or the really bad things, the in-between part, um, just the middle of the road. If you're not standing out um, in one of those directions, that's not as memorable for a lot of professors or people. Mm -hmm. So position yourself in every opportunity to be diplomatic, collegial, be kind. Um, and build healthy relationships with everyone, regardless of them being in music, because those networks or those relationships could impact you later down the line when you go for a um, when you go for a job, and especially with letters of recommendation, that is a big deal. I would also say with letters of recommendation, be careful of who you ask 
to write your letters of recommendation. Someone that's been reviewing, um, been on hiring committees now, I can't tell you how many letters of recommendation I've seen where the recommender didn't even change the institution name on the on their recommender uh, letter. So meaning they were maybe applying for the University of Florida, uh, this particular applicant, but their recommender had like another university there. So that recommender didn't even take the time to edit or proofread or maybe flesh out the letter. There's a lot mm -hmm. that can be um, there's a lot that can be read through in a letter of recommendation. So just be very mindful of who you ask um, to be your recommender. And uh, um, if you're getting any type of hesitancy from a recommender, that someone that you go to, maybe that's not a person to ask. Um, another a couple of things uh, is if there's a recital component, so say you get invited for the job, uh, play to your strengths. Don't make a program that you think your committee or that particular school wants to hear. Mm -hmm. Be true to yourself and your musical spirit. Mm -hmm. So works that you have a understanding with, um, works that you have a relationship, uh, those are the ones you should be programming. Or And try not to let other people there's just also the getting too much advice like you should do this you should do that mm. look to yourself and what pieces set you off in the best light because right. that's going to set you up for success when you go to uh play for an interview if playing is a part of the job process and i find those that at least for me when i've done that um and not thought about what the committee wants to hear i feel more comfortable more confident um and just true to myself i'm like this is who i am and in my playing and if it doesn't work for you then then that's okay. It's it's maybe I'm not the right fit. And then the last thing I would say is um, um, do mock interviews with your peers, with your mentors, because the interview process can be quite awkward, as we all know. It's <laughs> it could just be there's so many things that could go wrong. Or um, I will let you know that I am terrible at speaking off the cuff. Oh my gosh, I'm a no, you're not. Man. You're fabulous. <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> but no, seriously, you should. I, I unfortunately I have a support a supportive um, uh, spouse that um, is great at speaking off the cuff and coming up with talking points and because sometimes like I just get off on tangents way too many times and uh, but we've practiced um, over phone uh, back in person when we back in the in person days uh, pre pandemic um, and and pandemic days we've done uh, practice Zoom interviews Zoom is super awkward to do an interview over and uh, uh not with you ladies but um <laughs> you think about a hiring committee and so we've helped our friends through the process because we're like nope do that again um streamline your answer and that has been i think one of the most helpful things i would say if anybody has that opportunity do mock interviews and as many as possible and save those interview questions because there is a 
all of these questions, they're, they're sort of universal, or many of them are universal in uh, job interviews, especially in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, so save those interview questions and practice interviewing uh, because the more streamlined you can get your answers, uh, the better, and uh, the comfort of interviewing in front of people. And, and then having people ask follow-up questions <laughs> and that are surprising, or maybe sometimes you might get a pointed question from a committee member. Um, and like, how do you handle that? Are you resilient enough to pivot um, and be able to address that question, even though it might have taken you aback? Mm -hmm. I want to make sure to talk about your uh, recent recording debut, a musical bouquet, old, new, and borrowed works for bassoon and strings released on MSR Classics. Can you talk to us about that project? Choosing repertoire, you mentioned the importance of repertoire that resonates with you in terms of spending time and creating a relationship. Talk to us about this project. Well, um, I love playing with strings. I, I just adore it. Um, no, I, I love just collaborating in general, but um, in my early studies, I didn't have that many opportunities to play with string players in chamber in chamber group settings. And it was really later on, uh, it was actually in doctoral school where I had uh, my first experiences doing this. And it just resonated with me so much. In the back of my mind, I said, one day I am going to make a CD and release it with bassoon and strings. And uh, um, also, playing with strings is difficult. That's the, a thing. Um, uh, it really holds you to account for tuning and uh, um, and articulations and matching and bridging the wind world with the string world. Uh, but I adored that challenge. Um, now, coming up with a repertoire, it's all stuff that I, ex I had experienced that re I really loved. Um, the Devian uh, quartets, they're really uh, treasures for us, I believe, in um, the bassoon world. And that G minor one has this pathos to it that, oh, just makes my, I know this sounds so cheesy, but heart sing when I get the opportunity to play it. And uh, and especially with, with dear friends who are a, a part of this collaboration. So these were all people um, that I've worked with um, in uh, Valdosta or in the Georgia area, we came together and to make, uh, to create a project, I asked them, I said, hey, would you all be interested in doing this? Because it's sort of a sort of an offshoot of what I did at a, um, IDRS in 2016 in Columbus, I did a recital of music for bassoon and strings. So that was such a, um, oh, just sort of a huge motivator for me or just sort of um, boosted me. And I, I said, oh, I can do this and I should definitely make this as part of my plan in the future to record. So a couple of those pieces were on that program. So the Devian was um, with these same people, uh, the Potpourri um, on Zampa, uh, that was on there, and um, there were a couple other pieces that I did in the recital that I didn't program um, on the CD, but I wanted, I felt so strongly about these works, um, and I know there's been recordings of the, the Debian, but the um, uh, the Jacoby Potpourri, there's, I don't think there is a recording off the top of my head for this instrumentation for bassoon and string quintet. Uh, so I was really excited to get that out there because it's a fun piece. It's, mm -hmm. you know, bassoon fireworks, man. It doesn't get any better than that. It's, <laughs> it's, and it's operatic. And I, I love singing guys. I really, singing is, is so much fun and, you know, especially karaoke. Oh my gosh. I, What's I your love... favorite karaoke song? 
Oh, I will survive. That's my first. Oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I warm up the room with I will survive. Uh, I know oh, I'm getting off topic here, but getting back to choosing the repertoire, I was pulling from stuff that I'd done from an IDRS uh, recital in 2016. And then I um, uh, really sort of, um, I wanted to, I love arranging and um I had discovered a couple works, one by Barbara Strozzi and uh, Claire Schumann. Um, I, I listened to a lot of singers <laughs> and um, I heard some of these Schumann songs and I thought, oh, this would work great for bassoon and strings. So I wanted to foster that type of area of arranging and featuring two women composers um, and giving us more repertoire uh, to pull from. Um, and they're actually quite accessible too because sometimes there's barriers uh, to players um, where um, there's new music being written or arrangements that are are maybe a little bit um, out of reach for where you are. And those are very accessible arrangements for um, players uh, starting off on their jury, journey or, um, you know, midway through their journey. Actually, it's accessible for most, most people because of uh, the lyrical nature of those pieces. Um, and then finally, there was a, a piece on there that I commissioned by a French composer, Alexis Ciesla. And the crazy thing, what happened with that piece and how that came or how that was born is I was at a clarinet conference with uh, my husband in Belgium. And uh, I went to the last, uh, the evening, the gala concert. So it's all the clarinet nerds of the world get together and amazing performers. <laughs> and, and of course, I'm a fish out of water, although I love clarinet music and clarinet clarinet people. You guys are awesome. But uh I was in the audience and there was a concerto written for clarinet and orchestra and it was written by Alexis and after the performance I was stunned I I was sitting there going my goodness this person needs to write for bassoon because or at least write for me because I just felt it was uh the the compositional voice that he had uh really was incredible and uh there was an after party which we went to that's like part of the fun of going to conferences of networking and after partying and uh uh I ran into him at the after party and with a little bit of courage went up to him and said i i really adored your music and made such an impression on me would you ever consider writing for a bassoon and he said well i've never written for a bassoon before but here's my card just reach out to me and uh i did and asked him if he would write a, um having the cd in mind in this project and my friends uh i asked him to uh write a piece for bassoon and string quintet and uh, commissioned a work from him and Danza um, de Lisboa was born out of it and it's based off of Fado music and oh guys check out Fado music on YouTube it's just oh it's it's really really good it's, it pulls at the heartstrings and and uh it, it was all stuff that I jive with dancing and sentimental and and joy and and uh sadness it was all boxed up into one piece and uh so he he just created a gem uh I, I believe and I would love for more people to experience it once uh, that gets out there so basically um it was my love of playing with strings and and uh, having some of these works that I wanted to expose to the bassoon world at large um 
and then um, getting some new music out there and and um, just wanting to have something down in, in history of, of my musical voice being shared with the world. Um, mm -hmm. As nerve wracking as that can be, because with recordings, as you all know, it's a it's a painstaking process. And I do want to point out that there's a lot of editing that goes in into recordings, too. That's another thing um, that, uh, you know, if you're doing a CD project, it's not what you're hearing is not a live performance with uh, little moments of oopsies and stuff like that. It's it is indeed edited to show you off or actually to be able to um, not only show you off and your group off, but uh, communicate as accurately as possible the written music of these composers. So um, in live performance, there's going to be oopsies. Uh, so, you know, I just want to point that out with that CD. We did do some editing. Yeah. yeah. Don't compare yourself to recordings. <laughs> yes, don't do that. Well, yeah, that is that is a thing. It, it, it is. It could, yeah. uh, you know, recordings have been a blessing uh, because we can refer to them. Yeah. But it's also been a curse for us, yeah. you know, when we think about it. So anyway. Shannon, you have had such a fun and interesting musical life. And I want to hear some of your favorite memories of past performances. Oh, wow. Um one of my favorite memories comes from playing uh, Shostakovich's 10th Symphony with the Valdosta nice. Symphony Orchestra. And there, as you know, there are some um, hair-raising bassoon solos in a good way, like the, the goose pimply way, uh, goosebump <laughs> ways. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to play principal and I had listened to the symphony. I mean, I love Shostakovich's music. He writes so incredibly well for bassoon. And we had a guest conductor come in, uh, Edward Cumming. And the, the experience with being with a master conductor and someone that um, pulled it out of you, like all of my colleagues, we gave it all we had. Uh, it was just so thrilling and to be able to be in the hot seat and and have a voice like a major voice because sometimes the bassoon we're in a supportive role and and uh, we're there in the background sometimes we're a wallflower but to have a moment where you get to stand out and uh, share your voice for such a moving work of a classical repertory or repertoire uh, with the audience, that was thrilling. And um, I still get the chills when I think about it because it just, it felt so right. And then to have everybody playing, um, giving it all that they, they could. It was exciting. Um, of course, when I get to collaborate with my husband, he's a clarinetist. Uh, so having that chemistry together, anytime we work together, and especially after being together for quite a, a great deal of time, um, there's something really exciting and rewarding about playing with another uh, with another musician who you have that relationship with. And uh, anytime we do a concert together, be it chamber music, or if we get to sit side by side in orchestra, but just becoming a little bit far far and few these days, especially with um, uh, the pandemic still in our midst, um, that to me thrills me to no end. And, and I count my lucky stars that I'm uh, like fortunate enough to to be able to do that. Um, and I think making, um, uh, playing the uh, Ciesla, the uh, Dancha de Lisboa with uh, the Rio Verde String Quartet, which I did for the recent IDRS um, virtual conference, that was 
So exciting too. Um, they are a preformed quartet, so they work together a lot. And having a quartet that, um, again, has built these relationships, there's a different energy. Um, and that was so thrilling. I just, I felt like we fed off of each other and to be able to put together that performance, um, that was also really a memorable and exciting experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to hear about Mozart at 30,000 feet. <laughs> I'm well, just okay, kidding. This is pre this is pre TikTok times. I, I totally was born at the wrong time or maybe too late. I don't know. But oh it was oh gosh, this is Southwest Airlines. So you know, I that was I flew into Long Island Long Island for my audition and on my way back out um to back to Florida it was a night flight, an evening flight, and I knew it was going to be a special flight because the, the attendant said at the beginning, this Boeing's a going, and I'm like, oh boy, we have a comedian, this is going to be fantastic, and everybody was mesmerized by my bassoon case because I had the Weissman tubular one mm -hmm. back in the day. And um, they're like, what's in there? And all of them were gathered around and people um, said, Oh, you play bassoon? Could you play for us once we get into the air? And I said, sure, I'll do that. And once we got up uh, past 30,000 feet, I went to the back and so the plane wasn't too crowded. So I didn't play for a huge audience um, because it was a late night flight. Um, but there were the people in the back part of the section. And then I was in the, you know, back by the bathroom stalls uh, and they held the speakerphone to my bassoon so the captain <laughs> and co-pilot could hear. And I played the exposition of the Mozart concerto because that was fresh in my brain from uh, the audition. Um, I probably wish I would have had like a cooler thing to play. Although Mozart's cool, but you know, I didn't have a, a little jazzy thing or a little What snazzy. about I Will Survive? I yeah. know. I need to learn that. Galit, I'm going to file that away. I'm going to learn that on bassoon. Make an arrangement um, for karaoke. I could just, instead of singing, just pull out my bassoon and wow everybody. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that that was uh, the playing for the Southwest crew and uh, people on the flight. Talk about altitude training, right, Shannon? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> My read worked. It was amazing. Oh. <laughs> playing at 30,000 feet is definitely cool, but it's not embarrassing. So I want to hear some perhaps memorable for the wrong reason. Oh my, I know this is a repeat. Yeah, uh, please do. Yeah, please repeat. Time. We were it's hoping a repeat, you uh, But it's really the only one, thankfully, thankfully, the only one uh, that really is emblazoned in my memory. And it's the reed falling down my dress for <laughs> state solo ensemble, I think either ninth or 10th grade. The years are all blurring. Um, but I was doing solo day concert um, by Pierre and I made it to state. It was a big deal. And um, I had a dress on and it, it wasn't like I was wearing a crazy low cut dress but i am i am endowed in the chest area a little bit more so and when i was sitting down to play for the judge and all my band friends and the band parents were there because that's what you did if you go to state you go to each other and cheer each other on you're like yay go pirate band and i i was getting to the compound meter part bottom bum that really jolly part and then there were some rests and i 
somehow brushed against the reed, and this is a good good reminder, always make sure your reed is reamed out to the appropriate uh, length. But I was again a baby in my reed adjusting and making process, and it just toppled down into my dress during the rests. And I remember looking up, panicked, and my, of course, my pianist, she kept going, and then I didn't come in when I was supposed to. And she looks at me, and I look back at her, and I said, my reed fell down my dress. And <laughs> I reached down, and luckily, it was caught. It didn't go all the way down, because I would have had to get up and shake it out. So it could have been even more embarrassing. And, and I put it on my, I put it on my bassoon, and I start playing, and the judge and everyone the room erupts in laughter and they said wait 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 hold a minute we have to process just what happened and mind you i've come out of my shell a lot since my freshman uh sophomore years of high school and uh, i was mortified uh super mortified and um but I played all, I, I got myself collected and started over and ended with a bang, you know, some bang at the end of that piece and um, did well. And uh, I, I got the nickname treasure chest from my <laughs> band bandy people they would just refer to me they didn't even call me shannon they're like hey treasure chest and <laughs> because and it, there's there's a reason why treasure is involved is because my reads were my treasures apparently i used to say that and <laughs> my one good read was my treasure you know the one good read i don't did miles uh say that in an interview just like that one good read that you have yes i only had high one school. good read in all of high school in all yeah. of high school, it was that one good read that was my treasure, and then of course having a a large ur chest um, as a young woman that I've never been able to live that down. I'm always when I go back home to my hometown, I'm like, please, just don't let anybody call me that. <laughs> and then and then um, yeah, to this day when I play or if I play that piece, because it is a fun piece, or if my students and it's a good one to program for students too, um, one of our standards. And when I get to that section, it crosses my mind still to this day. So <laughs> but I survived. Yeah, TC treasure chest. Uh, Getting real here. <laughs> I love it. I probably should have worn a turtleneck, you know? That would have been a good idea. <laughs> a turtleneck in Florida. <laughs> I know, I know. I know, it's like 100 degrees. It's an armpit. It's still an armpit right now in Florida, so yeah, it's not cool yet. <sighs> okay, Shannon. What advice would you give a young person who aspires to have a career like yours? I would say have patience and perseverance, uh, have faith that um, things will work out. Practice slowly. I could go back to my younger self. I would have done much more of that. Um, I would also say, uh, to um, play as much as possible, take every opportunity to play because you don't know um, what could come out of that opportunity. So if you have a friend that's putting, say a composer friend, uh, putting a group together, uh, a local group, local performance of their work, play in it because later down the line, they might think of you uh, for a job or a performance. Um, 
I'd also say maybe, and this is coming from a thinking back to my younger self in undergrad, maybe not getting involved uh, in a serious relationship early on in collegiate studies. This is to be completely honest, because this could mm -hmm. be potentially helpful. Um, I was a little bit in a rush. I don't know if it was just the, um, I don't know why I felt this pressure to to be in a, a long-term relationship or, a, or a start down that path, but it, I was in a serious relationship and I devoted a lot of time to that, you know, in young, when I was young, I, I just didn't know any better. And I've learned a lot from that experience. Uh, but uh, that I was thinking, wow, I could have had much more fun, like networking, doing even more opportunities, spending more time on my bassoon uh, here and mm -hmm. there. Um, and knowing that, um, oh, and he was a gamer too, really into games, game playing, like, I remember PlayStation 2 had just come out and I got sucked in one summer and played an RPG. It was called Dark Cloud. Like I spent hours over the summer playing mm. that game. You know, it was like kind of sucked into the black hole. Um, so with the uh, early collegiate studies and stuff, it's about finding that balance um, and surrounding yourself with people who are looking forward to the same path. And... Um, and another thing maybe is if anybody is negatively impacting you, like maybe you're investing all this time in them and they're not, or there's a sort of sucking the life out of you with any mm -hmm. sort of a relationship, it's okay to move on from that and make a healthy parting. Um, and the friends that are meant to last it will they'll stick with you no matter what distance years same thing in music you know um so yeah the biggest one if i could go back i'd tell myself uh maybe not get too serious too soon mm -hmm. that's incredible advice and it's about like you know how important it is to surround yourself with people who respect you and your goals yes, and your exactly what you want from your own life Exactly. Yeah. I, I had, I had put my goals in alignment with their goals and yeah. not knowing how to separate myself from that and yeah. finding, finding that, finding that out was a little bit rough. Um, but it was very, it was an eye opening experience and, and healthy and needed. But if it, if it happens, it happens. I don't look at it with regret. It was just a, it's just, Hey, that happened, but don't get too serious too soon. There's yeah. so much time to be, life gets serious quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it does adult, like, I know we've heard this a thousand times. Adulting is hard. <laughs> it is. It's rewarding. And you get to do a lot of awesome things, but, um, yeah. And, oh, enjoy the growth, enjoy growing on your instrument and not being in a rush for the immediate results while you're in mm -hmm. school. I would say that would be another thing. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the ride. And uh, because, you know, there's so many times also in our playing, um, which is a development, there's like a plateau for a long time, you yeah. know? And then like, when are we gonna start going up in our progress and it's right. trusting in it and and just saying, hey, this is where we are, we'll, we'll get there. There will be a climb in our ability. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer and, um, yeah, I hope hope that helps in some way. Shannon, as always, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for spending this time with us today. It's just been so much fun. And thank you for joining us on Double Read Dish. Awesome, awesome.
Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview and follow us on social media. We've got some cool things around the corner. We're featuring our composers from our consortium. You can join that if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, what do we got coming up for next time, Galit? We have a fantastic interview with Carrie McCarthy, professor of oboe at Washington State University. You're going to want to listen to that one with a pen and paper or a notes app to write down the names of all of these composers that she throws out at us. So get excited. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.